0: Thank you, Krista, for that ministry and music. I have a simple but poignant question for you this morning, and that is, if you knew the will of God, would you do it? If you knew the will of God, would you do it? One of the favorite topics for speakers to youth, because it's a area that youth have a lot of interest in, is how do I know God's will for my life? That's a legitimate question. Usually framed around such things as, how do I know if I should go to college or not? And if I should go to college, how do I know which college to go to? And if I know which college to go to, how do I know what I should major in? How do I know what I should do with my life? How do I know what job I should have? How do I know who I should marry? And the questions go on and on and on. How can I know God's will for my life? But there's a question even more basic than that, as opposed to how do we know God's will for our life, and that is, why do you want to know God's will for your life? Would it make any difference? Sometimes I think people ask the question more out of idle curiosity. It's more like consulting a a crystal ball. It would be pretty nifty. It would be pretty neat if I could see the future and know God's will for my life. But if you knew God's will for your life, would you do it? If I were to tell you definitely without question Absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, what God's will for your life is. Are you committed this morning to doing it? If I can tell you what God wants from you, you individually, individually, I'm talking to each and every single person. If I could tell you individually, what God wanted you to do, would you be committed this morning to saying, I'll do it. I'll do it. Well, it just so happens that I'm able to do that. I'm able to tell each and every one of you what God's will is for your life. Turn with me, if you would, to First Thessalonians chapter 4. This morning we're going to consider what the Bible clearly teaches is God's will for each of our lives. God's will, and thus what brings pleasure to God, is for believers to live sexually pure and holy lives to refrain from sexual immorality of any kind. Key verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God. Well, how, how much clearer can you get than that? Hit you right between the eyes. This is the will of God. What is it? Your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for each and every one of us is that we are to abstain from sexual immorality. Believers are to be set apart. They're to be different from the unbelieving world around about them. That's what the word "sanctification means. It means to be set apart. It means to be dedicated, devoted. And one tangible manifestation of that difference is to live sexually pure lives. 1 Thessalonians four three. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. You're being set apart. You're being distinct. You're being different. That is, that you abstain from sexual sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is prevalent. It's all around us. There's nothing new about that. It has been true of every day and every age. And it was true within the church at Thessalonica. And so the call is to be different. To be different. To refrain from sexual immorality. The word immorality has to do with any kind of illicit sexual behavior. The word illicit means improper, not permitted, unlawful. It's unlawful not in the eyes of civil government, but unlawful according to God's word, God's law, what God determines as being right and wrong. Thus, we are to live sexually pure lives as defined by God's word. There are four categories of illicit sexual behavior that are addressed in the law of God. There are four big categories under which we can look at numerous things. But basically, four aspects to uh, illicit sexual behavior. The first is premarital sex. That is sexual behavior between two individuals who are not married. That is forbidden by the word of God. The second is adultery. That is sexual behavior between two people when one or both are married to another individual. That is forbidden by the word of God. Homosexuality. That is sexual behavior between two people of the same sex. That is forbidden by the word of God. The last is bestiality. That is sexual behavior between a human being and an animal. And that is forbidden in the word of God. God's will is that we abstain from every form of illicit sexual behavior. Not just some manifestations, but all the manifestations of illicit sexual behavior. The, the Bible is not prudish about sex. It's also not bashful about sex. It addresses it quite openly, quite frankly. And sex in the Bible is to be celebrated. Sex is not a dirty word. Sex is great. Sex is a beautiful thing. Sex is something that we should Enjoy. Sex is beautiful and holy and wonderful in the confines of marriage. That's the thought. In the confines of marriage. Habakkuk, excuse me. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. As Christians, we need to be committed to abstaining from sexual activity that violates God's word. Now, having said all that, we are going to look at a passage that teaches us, of all things, how to abstain from sexual immorality. How to abstain from sexual immorality. And what it teaches in a nutshell is that each person must learn how to take a wife in a manner which honors God and distinguishes us from the world. And I'm going to unpack that sentence, looking at virtually every word, every phrase of that sentence as the word of God addresses this issue. So look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4, as we dissect these words that I think are in keeping with the overall statement that I just made. The first underscores the words, each person. Let each person learn how to make, take a wife in a manner which honors God and distinguishes us from the world. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4. let each of you, let each of you know how to possess his own vessel. Thus, each person is to concerned with having a sexually pure life. It is intended to be individually applied. That's why I said that I can tell you God's word, will for your life, individually. And I can go through and start calling out names. That this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you. For me, Each one of you. It is to be taken to heart by every single person that hears it. It has relevance for each one of us, without exception, to live pure, sexually pure lives. Next, each person must learn how to take a spouse in a manner which honors God and distinguishes us from the world. Emphasis on learning. Notice verse 4. That each of you know how to. How to. How to. The word to know is more literally translated to understand. We are to understand what it takes to be sexually pure. We're to understand how it's done. How can we achieve that goal in our lives? What kinds of things do we need to do? To guard ourselves so that we don't find ourselves living sexually impure lives. We need to develop a plan. Not just a goal that says we are going to live sexually pure lives. But having established that goal, now we need a plan to get there. Now we need a way to fulfill it. Now we have to walk down a road that is going to accomplish that end or that purpose. We to develop a game plan. Let me just give you some quick examples here, uh, by no means exhaustive, and we will look at more than what this passage says. We should not put ourselves in places where we are more easily tempted. Now, the scripture says in the book of James that sexual lust comes from within. That it's it's the problems with our hearts. But there are situations in which it's much easier for our hearts to express themselves. There are situations that we find ourselves in in which we are going to be Be more tempted. For example, bad news to be in the dorm room of a person of the opposite sex in the wee small hours of the morning. Just not the right thing to do. Maybe there's no intention. Maybe there is no thought that, that we're going to engage in sex. But you're just putting yourself in a bad Situation. We need to set rules and boundaries for ourselves. And as parents, we need to set rules and boundaries for our children. And I remember that the girls used to like to say to me, Dad, don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? Because I had rules for their conduct and what I expected from them. Don't you trust me? That never put me off. That never slowed me down. And I would look them right in the face and say, no, I don't. But it's not you in particular I don't trust. I don't trust human beings. I don't trust myself. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to realize how weak we are. And we should not even trust ourselves by putting us in situations in which we think we would never do something and then find ourselves doing the very thing that we said we would never do. Guard our hearts, guard our minds, guard where we are. We need to date the right person. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Again, one of the The favorite topics in teaching young people is dating standards and practices. And one of the hotly debated issues is, must I only date a Christian? Must I only date a Christian? I would say the answer is yes. And I would take it a step further. And that is, you should only only date a dedicated Christian. Only a dedicated Christian. Don't put yourself in a place where the person that you are with is going to try to go beyond the boundaries. And the uh, text in a few verses down talks about transgressing. It's literally to to, uh, go on somebody else's property. Don't let people on your property. Don't let people push you. And so we are to flee by youthful lust, by being with those that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Be with someone else who is strong, so that even if in a moment you are weak, they are not going to take advantage of you, but they are going to reinforce your values. That they are going to be strong. And they're going to say no to that which is evil and right to that which is good. I'll say more about that later. Next, each person must learn to take a spouse in a manner which honors God and distinguishes us from the world. In 1 Lessons four 4.4, we have this phrase. You should learn that each of you know how to, and now these words, possess his own vessel. Strange wording. Possess his own vessel. The NIV translates it, you should learn to control his own body. The phrase that is key in the passage that is before us is this phrase, to possess his own vessel or to control his own bodies. Some commentators have seen that what this particular verse is teaching us is that we need To learn how to practice self-control. Well, I would say that's probably true. There's no question we need to learn to practice self-control. But I don't think that that's the primary emphasis of this particular verse. The verse says, as is translated by the NAS and the King James, to learn how to possess his own vessel. The word, translated as control in the NIV, is not translated that place anywhere else in the Bible. It's translated as acquire, gain, get, obtain, or possess. It's talking about how you get something, how you acquire something, how you possess something. Thus, it is much more likely that the verse is talking about a process by which you are learning to possess, acquire, your own vessel. And 1 uh, Peter talks about our wives as being weaker vessels. It's talking about how, in a nutshell, you should take a wife. How, how it is that you should get married. The idea is how... Can you get to the place where you are married without having committed sexual immorality? You need to understand that. You need to understand the progress. You need to know how to demonstrate love and intimacy. You need to know how it is possible to get married without having committed premarital sex. Next. Each person must learn how to make, take a spouse in a manner which honors God and distinguishes us from the world. Verse 4. Each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification, in unique committedness, dedicatedness to the Lord. That which distinguishes the process for the Christian from that of the unbelieving world is that, is that the process is not to be driven by lust. Verse 5. Not in Lustful passion, like the Gentiles, who do not know God. There is to be a world of difference between the Christian and the non-Christian in this area. The non-Christians, which are characterized as Gentiles, they don't know God. They are driven by lustful passions. Sexual desires and fulfillment. And in their relationships, that's what they want. They want to have their sexual desires fulfilled. And we are to be different. We're to be set apart. And what is driving us is not that our sexual desires are fulfilled. All too often, Christians engage in the same kind of behaviors as non-believers do. Let me say that again. All too often, Christians engage in the same kind of behaviors as non-believers do. But there's very little difference between the lifestyle of one who professes faith and one who does not. And then there are rare instances that some people live worse lives than the non-believers around about them. And you say, well, how in the world could that be? How could anyone live any worse than the non-believers round about them? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, that someone is having sex with his mother. The Scripture says, The pagans don't even do that. The non-believers even recognize that that's wrong. And yet, there is in your midst this person who is having a sexual relationship with his mother. And the church tolerates, looks at it, and blinks their eye as though there is nothing wrong. There are many that would understand that to be his stepmother. I can understand why. Because it's really offensive to think that it would be his mother. But there's nothing in the word that makes us understand that to be a stepmother. It could be his literal physical mother. It happens. It happens. What's shocking is that it would happen in the life of an individual that professes faith. And that what would be even more shocking is to think that a church would think that that's okay. We should not live sexually impure lives. And it's not okay. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Uh, We are to live a godly, holy, pure life. And anything else is not okay. 5. Each person must learn how to take a spouse in a manner which is honorable. Verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. The taking of a wife is an honorable manner, encompasses a number of ideas. First, in a manner that is honorable to God, that glorifies God rather than dishonors God. For 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Glorify God by what you do with your body. Glorify God by how you live and how you use this body. And God is not glorified by using your body for sexual immorality. It's not honorable. It's not praiseworthy. God is not pleased with it. Secondly, That which is honorable addresses ourselves and those that we date and ultimately our spouse. We're to conduct ourselves in such a way as we don't bring disgrace to ourselves or to the one that we are with. People do disgraceful things. Things that they are ashamed of. Things that bring reproach. We live in a society that is trying desperately to remove the reproach. To remove the stigma. To remove the shame. To remove any condemnation of sexual immorality. But let me tell you, it still exists. It still exists. And people who live together will encounter many embarrassing situations. But more than that, they rob themselves of the joy that newlyweds experience. They rob themselves of the joy that newlyweds experience. There's a difference between a couple who decides to move in together and a couple that decides to get married. There is, unfortunately, a a joylessness, if you will, for this couple that is moving in together. They have missed out on one of the great things of life. Likewise when a child is born out of wedlock that couple is missing one of the greatest joys in life i am always thankful i am always thankful when a person who has been uh, who has had uh, uh, sex out of wedlock and uh, is pregnant carries that baby to term that is praiseworthy without a doubt, without question. I rejoice that they have not uh, added to the situation by having an abortion. Therefore, I think it's very appropriate to have a baby shower for someone who's out of wedlock. We are celebrating not the sexual act, we're celebrating the birth of a child. But, even in that setting, It's just not the same. It's just not the same. As when one shows up and they are now married and they announce that they are pregnant and everybody rejoices and everybody's thankful and pats them on the back. It's not the same. And we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is honorable, that is praiseworthy, that's filled with joy and delight for God and for ourselves. With that in mind, what must a person understand with respect to how to take a spouse in a manner which honors God and distinguishes us from the world? For this verse says, uh, in verse uh, 4, that each of you know how or to understand how to do this. So what do we need to understand? First, We need to understand that we can't learn about love and sex from the world. Verse 5. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles. NIV. Not in a passionate way like the heathen. We must understand that there is a world of difference between how a non-Christian world views dating and engagements and living together and marriage from that which is to be the Christian's view I just happened to watch a rerun of Frasier you know what Frasier is the TV show he's a psychologist etc etc and uh, you know Frasier is usually a pretty clean show and uh, on that particular episode, Daphne was uh, having a, uh, a date with uh, an individual. And uh, she was deciding what perfume to wear. And uh, Fraser said, well, the third date is very important. Why is the third date important? Well, Frazier said, because that's when on the third date is you, you. And then he said, you know, you take it to the next level. He's talking about having sex. On the third day. Now, you may be shocked by that. But, you know, I I read about uh, groups on the Internet that are available now on college campuses where you can hook up and just advertise that tonight you'd like to have sex. And uh, a stranger can reply. Uh, It has nothing to do with anything. You don't even go out to eat. In fact, in fact, this particular article was saying that, that now on college campuses, most guys think it's a waste to buy the girl something to eat. Just have sex. We need to understand there's a world of difference. And we can't learn our standards from the world. Second, we must learn what true love is and how to develop a loving relationship. The concept of love bookends this passage. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 3.11, Now may our God and the Father himself and Jesus Our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love one for another. Then verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren. So, increase in love more and more, and now love the brethren. And in between that is sandwiched this section on sexual purity. In other words, understand that loving someone is not to be understood as having sex with someone. Love in our culture has become a euphemism for sex. Making love is to have sex. We need to understand there is a difference between showing love and having sex. And we need to understand and learn how to show love to someone without having sex. So that we know if someone says to us, if you love me, you would have sex with me. If you really cared about me, you would do it. We need to understand clearly that there is a distinction, a difference between having love and having sex. You can have sex with a prostitute, that is not showing them love. Even in the confines of marriage, it's possible to have sex in a loveless marriage. In fact, Having sex in a loveless marriage can make the partner feel like a prostitute. And sex is not the way to get someone to love me. It's not a manipulation. It's not the way that the girl wins the boy. And it's also not the way that the wife wins the husband and the husband wins the wife. That if there's a problem in my marriage, well, it'll be solved by having sex. No, it doesn't work that way. Sex and love are not interchangeable words. So, people who are dating need to learn how to express their love for each other in a manner other than having sex. In a marriage, we need to know how to express love for our partner without having sex. We need to understand that failure to love is a precursor to adultery so having said that we must learn what intimacy is and how to develop intimacy and intimacy is not synonymous with sexuality intimacy has much more to do with vulnerability and trust one can have sex with a person and not have an intimate relationship you can have sex with someone you don't even know their name that's not intimacy. Conversely, and more importantly, you can be extremely intimate with someone and never have sex. And the goal is to learn how to become more and more intimate without having sex. How to progress in your dating relationship where you're growing closer and closer together. Enjoying each other more and more. Being devoted to each other in an ever-increasing fashion without having sex. That's the goal. And we need to understand that there is an intimacy That is far, far more significant than sex. And here is the same message in reverse for married people. Because sometimes people who are married develop very close relationships with someone of the opposite sex. Relationships that quite frankly are unhealthy. Because there is a degree of intimacy... That's not good. Oh, they're never having sex. And the person will say, oh, they're just a friend. But the problem is intimacy. The problem is that you look forward to seeing that person at work more than you see your spouse at night. That's a problem. It's a problem when you would rather share your innermost feelings with a person of the opposite sex than you would with your own spouse. That's a problem. When you go to someone of the opposite sex, other than your spouse, for comfort, for encouragement, when you are sustained by them, that is a problem. Intimacy. Intimacy is the forecursor of love. And so people find themselves having an affair that they never intended, they never started down that road. They were just wanting to reach out to someone that they could relate to, that would understand them, that would care about them, and that caring erupted into feelings of love, intimacy, intimacy. So we need to learn how to become intimate. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we learn about intimacy? I keep telling us what we should do. Well, how do we do it? Well, we're given a pretty important clue in Genesis chapter 2, 23 and 24. Listen to these words. And a man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Leave father and mother cleave to your wife. This is written of Adam and Eve and they have no father and mother. So it's about marriage. It's about leaving the relationship that you had with your father and mother and replacing it with a relationship to your spouse. Leave your father and mother cleave to to your wife. And it's obviously not talking about a sexual relationship. You used to have sex with your mother and father, now have sex with your wife. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. It's talking about intimacy. It's talking about dependence. It's talking about the child who crawls on their mother's lap and is comforted in times of hardship and difficulty. When she makes it all better. It's about those times in which you sat down and enjoyed your mother and dad and shared with them things that were precious to you. Troubles, joys. When you used to look forward to going home from school and sitting down and talking with your mom or your dad, you enjoyed wrestling together, patting them on the head. It begins with having a good family relationship. Learn to develop intimacy within your family, and that then can be a way to learn to develop intimacy. With a person that you are now dating. Incest. Is a perversion of love and intimacy. I I think most of us would get that. I I think if. Most of us. if, If someone tried to pass off. That a father was having. An incestuous relationship with his 12 year old daughter. Because he loved her so much. I think we would scoff, would we not? We'd ridicule that. We'd say, huh, Fooly on you. That's not love, that's perversion. That's not a way to show intimacy. That's not a way to draw close to your daughter. You're to protect her. You're to honor her. We would get that pretty quick. Now we need to understand the same th- thinking is true of all illicit sexual activity. All immoral sexual activity is a perversion of love and intimacy. We picked on incest. We picked on homosexuality as a perversion. But I'm here to tell you today that every, every immoral act is perversion. It's a perversion of love and intimacy. It's not what God intended, and it's not real love. It is selfish. It is psychologically harmful, and it's dishonoring to God and the partner. It's not love. What do we need to understand? We need to understand that that which differentiates the believer from a non-believing world is that sexual immorality is defined by God and not by the culture. Notice verse 8. Consequently, he who rejects this teaching is not rejecting man, but God. Sexual morality is more than tradition. It is not even that which conforms to cultural norms. Sexual morality is not defined by the day and age in which we live and what most people think. Sexual morality is defined by God's word. His standard, which does not change down through the ages. So, verse 8. Therefore, who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God. Maybe I offended you this morning. Maybe there's somebody here that I really ticked off. And they're saying, what right do you have to say those things to me? What right do you have to question what I'm doing or how I'm living? What gives you the authority to find fault in the way in which I would conduct myself sexually? I would just point you to verse 8 and say, if you've got a problem, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with God. If you've got a problem, you don't have a problem with what I said. You have a problem with what God's word says. It's to reject his authority. I think that's important because somehow, even within evangelicalism, there has been growing this schism between what is spiritual and what is physical. It's almost like Gnosticism. Of the New Testament age rearing its head again. So that being spiritual is something that I am inside. It has really nothing to do with my physical body. I can do anything I want in my body and still be very spiritual, still be very in tune with God, still being very devoted to Him. That's false. That's not right. If you are engaging in immoral behavior, it's sinful. And by very definition means displeasing to God, inappropriate, that God is not pleased with. You can't be spiritual and living an immoral life. You at least got to be honest with yourself to that degree.